Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by the hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Pastor here at this church, the temperature, by the way, let me give you a temperature update. Over the last several Sundays, it's been like a greenhouse in here, upwards of 30 degrees Celsius and very uncomfortable. They did work on this building. They checked out the HVAC and the heating system, and they did some repairs. But we came in this morning at about 8 o'clock this morning. It was like a greenhouse in here, so clearly the repairs did not work. So by the way, so that's why the, the door is open. If you're getting too cold, we'll close the door. It will heat up again. Then we'll open the door again. That's kind of how it works. So anyhow, thanks for your patience with that process. But they may or may not be on it, and it may, not, may or may not be rectified. Uh, why don't we pray together and ask God to uh, open our ears to hear his voice speak to us and change us on the spot today. Uh, Lord Jesus, we come to you asking for you to be present among us, Holy Spirit. We ask you to teach us and instruct us about the meaning of what it is for you, Jesus, to be the cornerstone. Uh, the key uh, person who forms the foundation for the entire uh, temple of God, which we are all a part of and in whom you, Holy Spirit, dwell. This is such rich teaching, Lord, and I pray that we would not be lost with the depth of it, but rather encouraged and energized spiritually by it. Uh, Holy Spirit, I ask that every word I say would be from you and for you and your glory alone, that you would be at the center of what we're looking at and thinking about and considering today. 
Lord, we ask that you would change us on the spot by your inner working uh, in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits, uh, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Today's uh, ser- uh, sermon serves as the fourth installment in this series going through the book of Ephesians verse by verse, and the theme of the book is a manifesto for the church, a manifesto for the church. In other words, if you want to find out sort of God's plan and God's purpose for the universal church at large and also the local church, like our local expression is here at Mercy Hill, well, you go to Ephesians. Ephesians is the place to go to learn more about the church and why church. In terms of our passage today that Richard read for us, the sermon uh, title is The Cornerstone. The Cornerstone. Let me talk about construction for a second. I am probably not uh, the right person to be speaking about construction at all. Back when I was about 23, 24 years of age, I worked as a framer. If you know what a framer is, framers build houses. And I was essentially the framer's assistant, moving material. But as a framer, at age 23, 24, you need to know that I almost inadvertently, accidentally killed my boss on day two and then on day three. Day two was the nail gun. Those things are dangerous. And day three was... I caused him to fall off the the second story, and he survived without injury, a miracle. Again, I should not be talking about construction here. I am no expert, but let me give this a shot. Cornerstones are generally not used in most building construction projects today. If a cornerstone is used, it is often used in a ceremonial kind of way, kind of like that. Maybe you've seen one of those on the corner of a building. But in ancient times, cornerstones were pivotal. They were used all the time. Um, Large buildings that were made out of stones and large buildings which were built to last. Basically, every building back in ancient times, they were generally built to last, except for tents. But anyhow, the buildings were built to last back then. And they built their long-term buildings out of stones. And these stones were pre-cut ahead of time and prepared. And the cornerstone was the very first stone put in place as part of the corner of the foundation of the entire structure. Meaning, if your cornerstone was put in the right place, measured to perfection, okay, fully square, 90 degrees on the top and the bottom, and every on every corner, um, bang, that's what you wanted. That, then you'd have a successful building. But again, it had to be placed in just the precise, perfect place, perfectly in line with the wall going this way, perfectly in line, 90 degrees, with the wall going that way, setting the foundation for all the other rocks that would be put beside it, and that's what you wanted. And again, if your cornerstone was set perfectly, what was the result? Well, you would have a very successful, long-term, very very solid, stable structure. Everything was built in and around and set in and around the cornerstone, okay? Okay. That building would be firm, solid, not teeting, not like a Tower of Pisa, although I think that's more ground structure and soft ground and stuff, but straight in every way that building would be successful. Alternatively, if your cornerstone, let's say the construction guys were drinking a little bit too much wine back in the day and, and they kind of set the, the cornerstone a little off kilter, and well, that cornerstone, maybe it was corrupt, maybe it wasn't pre-cut correctly. And it wasn't 90 degrees and perfectly rectangular. Well, then the entire building would lean over. It would not be successful. It would not last long term. So don't you see that everything depends on the quality of your cornerstone and where that cornerstone is placed for that building 
to be successful, to work. And so it is with Jesus. He is described as being our cornerstone. Not physically, but we are speaking spiritually. He is the one on whom the entire spiritual temple, Paul talks about, and the entire gathering of, of God's people in God's kingdom depend. It all depends on Jesus. We are dependent upon him. And this cornerstone is a person. It's a human being. It is the God-man Jesus. He is the one who perfectly aligns us with God and then perfectly aligns us with each other as well and unifies us with God, unifies us with each other despite. I mean, if you look around in this room, you will notice there's a few racial differences. There's a few cultures represented here. And that's why the reason we get along despite all our differences is because we find commonality and common faith in Jesus. He takes away our life of sin, our alienation from God, our alienation from each other, our hostility towards one another. It all depends on Jesus, our cornerstone. So there's the sneak preview. Okay, last Sunday, we looked at the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And in those 10 verses, uh, the Apostle Paul, who wrote Ephesians, he clarified for us how, how you, individual, can be reconciled and made right with God on an individual basis. So you and Jesus, you and God. Verse 8 famously says these words, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And you can see how in those first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul is trying to show us how to individually get right with God. You and God, you and Jesus. However, now he's moving on from the individual perspective, in verses 11 to 22, he's taking things a step further to, to show us that it's not just you and God. It's not just you and God. There's more to the picture. That's why there's a church family like the one that, in which we have here before us. He shows us that in God's manifesto for the church, we are reconciled, not just reconciled to God through faith in Jesus, but we're reconciled to one another as well. And this is the big idea. You know, by the way, did you know that on the West Coast, whether it's California, Oregon, Washington State, British Columbia, and the Yukon, and Alaska for that matter, um, places on the West Coast tend to be very much individualistic. Much more, I can do it in my own strength. Don't you dare tell me what to do. Okay, I, I tell myself what to do. I take care of me. You take care of you. Very tough individual sort of spirit, if you will. Um, and, and so this is a healthy reminder from Paul while that is a good ideal, it's not just me thinking of me. It's not just you thinking of you and us and Jesus on our own, doing our own thing. No, we need each other. It's not just me, me, me. It's us, us, us. Now, when I wrote this sermon, by the way, I shouldn't even be saying this, but I said it's we, we, we. No, you don't write that down. The people are going to get mixed up. It's just going to send the wrong message. It's us, 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 not we, 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 or me, me, me. Okay, there, anyhow, this is God's view for the church. Us, us, us. Paul shows us how Jesus is our cornerstone. He reconciles us to God and to one another. Let's work through this. Um, there's going to be six points that demonstrate how Jesus is our cornerstone and all six wonderful things that we receive through this truth. But firstly, in your notes, if you're following along, Christ, our cornerstone, is what we're looking at. And this idea of Christ being our cornerstone, remember that corner rock of the, the corner of the foundation that sets the entire building and construction of the structure really is the linchpin for this entire passage. Let us recap. Again, this cornerstone, 
located in the corner. It ensures that the entire building and the structure is straight, it's solid, it's stable, it's beautiful, it's built to last. Christ is this cornerstone of the foundation for the whole proverbial structure of the temple that is made up of all God's people and family. Basically, no Jesus, then you got no temple of God's people. It all depends on Jesus. We're unified with God. Through Jesus, we're unified with each other. Through Jesus, he is the great, grand unifier. Now, in our passage, we're going to look at six things our cornerstone does for us. And the first thing that our cornerstone, Christ, our cornerstone, does for us is, little lay in your notes, he gives us hope. He gives us hope. That's what the cornerstone does for us. I want to ask you a question. Have you found yourself in a situation, a bad situation, where you thought, you know what, things are so negative here, things are not rosy, not positive here, that I need to get out of this situation. Like, what's the point? What's the point of me being in this situation, in this place? No future. There's no future. Have you ever experienced that? For example, you may have found yourself, or maybe find yourself currently, in a dead-end job. You're, maybe you're, you're working in a job currently, you just don't see where it's going. You just don't see how it's, you're going to like be there for 10 years even, maybe not even a year or two. Maybe you're asking yourself, why am I here? It's a toxic work environment. My boss is a jerk. Okay, I don't want to be here. Or maybe a school situation where you, know, you don't have that many friends and the teachers, there's no teacher that you really connect with or that you find is actually teaching you in a compelling way, like there's no passion in the teaching. And you're just like, there's no hope here. Like, why am I at this school? Um, and so whether it's a bad workplace, whether it's a bad school situation, you're on the outs, there's no hope in that place. Well, if you've ever felt that way, there's a group of people in the time of Paul that felt very much the same way. They felt very much the same way with even less hope than you may have been feeling in a toxic work environment or a bad school situation. They felt all kinds of alienation. Now, who were these people? This was a group of people called the Gentiles. You may have heard of a Gentile. And what is a Gentile? A Gentile is simply a person who is not Jewish, who is not part of the Hebrew nation. In fact, I think almost every person probably in this gymnasium would be in that category of, of Gentile. We generally are, are non Jewish. Now, why was this such a big deal in Paul's day? It's because to whom did God give his glorious Ten Commandments to? You know, written and carved by God himself on stone. Who did he give the Ten Commandments to? Well, he gave them to the Jews, to the Hebrew nation. And even though it was, it was actually never God's vision to, to limit his promises and, and, and his his you know, his future for God's people to just the Hebrew nation. In fact, a key reason why God chose the Hebrew nation and the Jews and Israel as his own chosen people was actually so that he could use them to display his character through them. So they were sort of the conduit, uh, you know, like think of a, a light passing through the prism. They were like the prism, if you will, if I can use that analogy, so that the rest of the world could see the glorious uh, beauty of God and the color of God, if you will. And so that was the whole point. God's promises were never just limited to the Israel or to the Jews. No, it was much bigger than that. But the problem is, in Paul's day, the Jews tended to isolate themselves amongst themselves. 
They viewed themselves, we are God's elite. We are the keepers of God's law. He, I mean, he gave the law to us. I mean, uh, we and we alone have hope. Those who are non-Jewish, those Gentiles, they're going nowhere. They're going straight to hell, essentially. There's no hope for them. They, we are, we and we alone, we're going to heaven. We're God's children. We're his people, not the lowly Gentiles. God doesn't like them. God hates the Gentiles. That was very much the thought and the belief of the Jews in Paul's day and age. I mean, he should know he himself was one of these angry Jews before he met Jesus. Well, imagine how this feels for you if you're a Gentile hanging around the Jews in your city. I mean, you, you, you feel how isolating this is. You feel alienated, like you're just left on, you know, you're on the outs with not just God, but the other, your, your Jewish neighbors. In fact, in verse 12b, Paul talks about how the Gentiles were, were isolated from, from God's covenant, covenants of promise. And, and as a result, they had no hope. They were isolated from God. There was a wall there. They were alienated from God, disconnected from God's people, Israel. They were lesser than. They were on the outs with God. But thanks to Jesus, again, that was never God's long-term vision for his people. Thanks to Jesus, and we're going to see this more in depth as we go along here, the Gentiles receive hope through him. They receive this new covenant, this new promise of a, of a great future with Jesus because thanks to, to faith in Jesus and the gospel, well, fellow Gentile, there's a few Gentiles in this room, we're now in the family. We're now in the family of God, the household of God. You, you, we now have in our future this mind-blowing ultimate inheritance to look forward to without any end for eternity. You know, if you're a non-Christian at this stage in your life, maybe you needed to hear that. Maybe you needed to hear there's hope for you. God is not finished with you. There, there is definitely hope. You don't have to be isolated. You don't have to be alienated from God or alienated from God's people. No, there's hope through Jesus. And so this serves as your invitation to repent of your sins, trust in the gospel. You know, the, the, the promise is there. Just open up your empty hands of faith, come to Jesus, be baptized as Christ commands and as Christ himself was. Respond to him and come to Jesus today. I'd love to have a conversation with you after the, the service today, if that's you. What's another? So he gives us hope. This is what our Christ, our cornerstone, does for us. Second benefit that Christ, our cornerstone, brings to us is that he brings us near to God as members of his household. Do you ever think of yourself, Christian, as being part of God's household? You're part of God's household now. You're brought near to God through Christ. I've shared this true story, and I realize the, the negative part of uh, about being a pastor and preaching most Sundays at, a, at the same church is you start recycling illustrations. So I'm going to sh actually share a recycled. I'm just getting your expectations up so high now. But uh, this one's really touching, and it's really affected me uh, deeply every, every time I share this story. And it's a true story. And it's a, a story of adoptive parents that they, they bring into their home uh, this, this little girl. And this little girl, who is adopted now, she formerly was living on the street uh, with her abusive, drug-addicted mother. Now, before you start judging the mother who's addicted to drugs here, where's the dad? Okay, he's gone. That very often happens. But anyhow, at least she's in her life at this stage. But because of crime and because something happened, this little girl, it was discovered that she needed to get out of that situation and get off the street and be adopted into a new home. And so she was. And so this Christian mom and dad 
took her into their home. Thanks be to God. Well, the child has a very difficult time adjusting and adapting to her new home now. I mean, she's just kind of keeping to herself, and she's not playing with the toys. Uh, she's very disengaged, and there's almost like no communication. There's no eye contact. And the thing that she, that she often does do is she cries herself to sleep every night. And the new parents, they're just like, what do we do? They're, she's not responding well to them, and they're kind of beside themselves. They try this, they try that. They struggle to know how to help this newly adopted little girl. Okay? And how do we get through to her and tell her, I love you. We love you. We're here for you. We love you. We're on your side. You're in our family now. How do they get through? Well, they tried a few things. And the only thing that worked, and there finally was one little breakthrough. After trying a few things after the first week or two, the new adoptive mother would hold the child for hours after dinner every day. So after two or three weeks of the mom holding this child in her arms and letting this child sort of cry it out, finally things changed for the positive. Finally, this, this new daughter of theirs relaxes. Finally, she starts playing with the toys. Finally, she starts sleeping at night. Finally, she realizes, this is my home. I belong here. This is my new mom. This is my new dad. Isn't that touching? That's amazing. Who thought, who knew that just hugging a child for hours on end, day after day after day, would be the ticket? Well, this is what God the Father does for us. Before we knew Jesus, we were like that little child living on the streets, isolated from God. Proverbial streets, if you will, the spiritual streets, apart from God, alienated from God. But thanks to Jesus, the promises of God are, are no longer just limited to this box called Israel. They're not, those promises aren't just for Israel. They're for any nation. Any na so every nation here today represented these promises through God and through Christ are, are for you. We can be brought near to God. You can be brought near to God. Look at verses 13 and 19 if you see that in front of you. Yes, B.C. What does B.C. stand for? Before Christ. B.C. I was once far off. You were once far off. B.C. We were aliens to God. Aliens to God's people. Didn't want anything to do with the church, right? Church was just weird before B.C. We were kind of living on the proverbial streets with a horrible spiritual father. His name was Satan. And now Jesus made a way for our Heavenly Father to bring us near. He brought us near to Him, near to the family, bringing us into His own household. This is what Christ, our cornerstone, from whom God's household is guided by and built upon, does for us. That's the second thing. We are brought near into God's household. Thirdly, the Christ, our cornerstone, gives us a little C in your notes, is that He is our peace. This is a great thing. Christ, our cornerstone, is our peace. Three times in our passage, you may have noticed that when that passage was being read, peace, peace, peace was being mentioned. Verses 14, 15, and 17, Paul teaches us that not only is, is Christ our cornerstone, and as our cornerstone, he is peace itself. Not only is he peace itself, represented by this person named Jesus, but also Jesus, he makes peace for us. He makes peace happen for us. He also then preaches peace to us. It's amazing stuff. Now, just what is this peace that Jesus brings to us? What, what is it? What's, what is it like and what does it do? The ESV Study Bible defines it nicely here. It says, peace refers to the state of harmonious friendship 
with God and with one another in the church. Peace refers to the state of harmonious friendship with God and with one another in the church. Again, peace with God, peace with each other. We're peacefully connected with God and peacefully connected with one another. Basically, if there's fighting in the church, you can kind of see, and that will happen because we're sinful, but that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to work things out. And so I'm going to put on the screen next uh, a diagram, and it's very complex. Okay, let's take a look at it. It's very complex. Okay, what is happening in this diagram here? Okay, and I, 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 this is not me trying to patronize anybody, okay? So please don't see it as that. But basically what this means is if we, basically your horizontal peace with other people is dependent upon your vertical peace with God that you, you have through trusting in Jesus. When you're made right with God, then you can be made right with other people in and around us, in our own marriages, in our own families, and also in our church family. So without that vertical peace with God, we have no peace with other people in and around us. And this is why we can only truly forgive each other. Let's say you say something against me and I hear about it and it's gossip. Well, how do I, how do we move forward with that situation? Well, I, I, I move forward. It's like, well, how can I not forgive you when Christ forgave me? Yes, I need to talk to you. Yes, I need to tell you that you hurt me. But we've got to work this out. How can we not work that out? Because of the vertical peace that Jesus has earned for us with the Father. You know, we forgive each other because Christ forgave us. It's foundational. This is kind of how it works. So you got to get right with God before we can be made right and made at peace with those in and around us in our own families and in our church families as well. The next thing that our great cornerstone does for us in your notes is little d, I think, unless I've lost my place. No, it's little d, is that Christ, our cornerstone, tears down divisions. Remember Ronald Reagan saying to the Soviet regime, tear down this wall. Remember that from the 80s? And it was beautiful, beautiful rhetoric. Reagan could had a way with words. Well, that's what we're kind of talking about here. Jesus tearing down walls, tearing down divisions. And I don't want to go too far down this road of speaking about walls uh, in geopolitics. You know, walls are, it's kind of a fixation in some places. And, and they're being built, and they have been built, and they are being made and constructed. Now, why, why do they make walls? Why do they make walls in geopolitics? Well, they make walls, well, you can't blame them, them in some cases. It, it, it's, it's about security, securing their own people. It's about creating some protection for their own people. Uh, but they're, clearly what a wall does is it separates nations, separates people, right? And again, there are some good reasons to put up walls. There are some bad reasons, but there can be no denying that walls tend to separate people from each other. A wall is a literal barrier between two nations, two groups of people. Interestingly, Paul talks about a dividing wall. If you look at verse 14 there, he talks about this dividing wall, and chances are good, I have an idea of what he's most likely speaking of. He's talking probably to the dividing wall that we see and was built uh, in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Okay? He is likely alluding to this uh, dividing wall that is there. And I think there's a picture on the screen. You may notice this. This is what Herod's temple, the last temple that was built, looked like. And you notice that wall on the very outside of the entire structure and complex. What was that wall called? Well, it was called a dividing wall. And basically, the courts of the Gentiles 
were only outside of that wall. If you were a non-Jew, you couldn't cross that wall. In fact, there was a sign all around that complex on that wall stating that if you went past that wall, which you could actually just you know, hop over, if you went over that wall, there may be certain death for you. You may be killed, Gentile. Okay, That's likely the dividing wall that Paul has in mind here. Getting inside that complex, well, who was that for? That was only for the Jews. And by the way, not just for the Jews, but you had to be a Jew in good standing. You had to be you know, doing that you had to be ritually clean because there was all kinds of water washings that you had to do and sacrifices that you had to make. And only if you were good enough standing could you actually be and enter the temple complex. Well, how did that make you feel as a Gentile? On the outs with God, of course. So this is what Paul has in mind. But then Jesus comes along. What does Jesus do? Well, he proverbially tears down that wall. That wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. He's ripping it down. And he creates, in place of that wall, a new unified people brought together. They were hostile towards one another formerly, but he brings them together. How? By his dying on the cross for our sins. In his body, we are brought together. In his body, which was sacrificed on the cross, we are brought together. There's peace. Those walls are torn down. You see, in a sense, remember that wall that was outside the temple complex there? In a sense, it's like Christ passed through that dividing wall for us. And it cost him his life. Remember, if you cross that wall, you're going to die. You might die. Well, it cost him his life. And he did that not only for the Gentiles, but also for the Jews too. Because the law wasn't going to make them right with God either. But he does this for any nation, any race, any ethnic group. Anyone who will trust in him, the offer, is, the offer stands. The amazing thing about this, you might be thinking, I'm not relating with this at all. I, you know, I haven't been to Jerusalem recently, and of course it's not even there. You'll see the outside wall of Jerusalem, but that's all you got. But the amazing thing about this, not only does, does Jesus bring all nations together by tearing down that wall, but Jesus, you know what, more practically, he tears down walls in our own relationships, in our own families, in our own marriages. Uh, I can't tell you how many walls I've constructed in my own marriage. Uh, Tammy has two. Okay, let's, She's far from perfect. She's a lot more perfect. She's closer to perfection than I am, certainly. But anyhow, I know per- personally, I'm going to get myself into trouble here, so I better stop. But I know that the only reason Tammy and I are still happily married to this day is because of Jesus. I mean, this stuff works, man. This, this stuff, this gospel, it's practical. It has made our marriage enjoyable, okay? And the reason that we're together is only because of Jesus. I know countless others who are still happily married. You know why? It's because of Jesus. I'm not saying that you can't be happily married unless you're a Christian, but I'm just, I just know the difference Jesus makes in marriage. He tears down walls. And the reason that he makes such a big difference in my own marriage is because, you know, uh, how can how can Tammy not forgive my sin when Christ has forgiven her? And he's forgiven a lot more, you see. How can I not forgive my wife for her sins against me when Christ has forgiven me and I've done a lot worse things against Christ? You see how this works? So Jesus, he tears down divisions racially. He tears down divisions maritally. 
uh, in all kinds of ways. He's, he's sort of the, the wall breaker, if you will. And I want to ask you this. I, I don't know what your relationships are like right now. I don't know what your marriage is like right now. I don't know what your work relationships are like right now. I don't know what your relationships even in the church are like right now. But are there some walls up in your life right now? And if there are some divisions, if there are some walls, you got to trust Jesus to, Lord Jesus, help me tear down those walls. Tear down the walls. It's not worth it, Lord Jesus. Show me the way. Show me how to make this right. Show me how to own my own sin in this situation. Next in your notes, little e is this, that Christ, our cornerstone, abolished, obliterated, killed the ceremonial laws. Now, this is interesting and a little technical, but bear with me. In our world today, you may know this. I know that in your workplaces, you have people who follow other world religions that are not Christians. And certainly Surrey is very diverse, and there's all kinds of different world religions. Uh, But there's a lot of these other world religions outside of Christianity. They emphasize ceremonial rituals. You know what I mean by that? Ceremonial rituals. For example, Islam. Islam requires you, as a good Muslim, you need to pray five times a day in a certain way facing east, I believe. Uh, In addition, to be a good Muslim, you need to try to go to Mecca at least once in your life, and you need to to make Friday prayers and go to, um, what do they call the, the, the Muslim place of worship? Mosque. You need to go to the mosque every Friday. That's just you just got to do it to be a good Muslim. These are the rituals. Okay. Then you have Orthodox Jews. You know, you as an Orthodox Jew, you can't be eating shellfish. You can't be eating bacon. Uh, you cannot work on the Sabbath, which the, it's the Shabbat. It's the actually Saturday. Uh, you can't actually on the Shabbat on Saturdays as an Orthodox Jew. You can't certainly you're not going to work, so you can't work. But you also can't walk. Like for me to walk much beyond. You know, the outside of this gymnasium, the entire day would be about it, I think. Don't quote me on that. But there's limitations with just how many steps you can take. It's, it's crazy, man. And then circumcision, that's required. And then let's talk about Buddhists. Let's talk about Hindus. Let's talk about uh, Sikhs. All of them have very strict ceremonial laws and rules associated with their own religion. Now, now why do they, they have these ritual ceremonial laws and rituals? It's because... If we obey these rituals and these ceremonial laws, God will be for us. If we don't do these laws and rituals, God will be against us. And so they're highly motivated. They don't, they don't want to be on the outs with God, you see. That's the idea. I can sort of earn my way into God's good books. And with the Mosaic Law, that would be the Ten Commandments, which would be the center of that. Well, as it turns out, with the Mosaic Law that God gave Israel back in the day through Moses... There were hundreds of these ritual ceremonial ordinances and laws, ritual washings. You couldn't eat bacon. You couldn't eat shellfish. Uh, circumcision was required for, for boys. And again, if, if you obeyed the law, then God would bless you. And if you didn't obey the Mosaic ceremonial laws, well, then God would curse you. That's kind of how it worked back then. Well, imagine you hearing this as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, about all these, again, these, these, these Jewish rituals um, and you didn't perform these rituals because you don't even know what that's all about. It sounds kind of weird. You know, if that was you and you heard about, oh, no, you have to do all these rules to get in with God. Well, you're like, well, I can't do that stuff. I mean, I mean circumcision, I, I don't want to do that. You know, and you're on the outside, no future, no, no God for you, no family of God for you. But then Jesus, our, our cornerstone, he comes along 
And in verse 15, Paul shows us that what Jesus did was he abolished, obliterated the ceremonial law. Jesus actually fulfilled the ceremonial law for us in his life, death, and resurrection. He became the ultimate sacrifice. Yes, we should obey, even as Christians, the moral part of the law, like the Ten Commandments. But this is why we Christians, as much as I like to barbecue, this is why we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. This is why circumcision is optional. This is why we can eat bacon and shellfish. Praise be to God for that, okay? <laughs> very much so. I'm very happy about that. Interestingly, even throughout the Old Testament, you know, and God was giving his people sneak previews that a big change was coming down the pipeline because he told his people time and again, uh, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your heartless rituals to be performed. I just want you. He says this to his people time and again. Hosea 6.6, 6, I don't want your sacrifice. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. As a parent, imagine trying to raise a robot. That, that's not motivating. You don't want to raise robots because there's no love there. See? Or so I think. I don't know. They're making new robots. I have no idea. But you get the point. God doesn't want robots. He wants you. He wants you. He wants your love, your devotion. He's a relationship-oriented God. He doesn't want you to be jumping through hoops. It's clear now. Jesus got rid of all these ceremonial laws and rules that we could never fully or perfectly perform. Only Jesus could. It is clear now. It's not about jumping through all the hoops, checking off all the boxes in order to get into God's good books. That's not how Christianity works. Salvation is not dependent on your own spiritual performance before God. It's not dependent upon how I perform, like creating a great spiritual resume for God so that He'll be so impressed with me on the day that I die, He'll let me into heaven, and He'll just say, wow, you're amazing! No, it doesn't work that way. Jesus has done all the spiritual performing for me in his life, death, and resurrection through his cross. What a relief. It's done now. It's done. Yes, I must look to Jesus. Help me, Lord Jesus, to, to obey your commandments. He's given us clear commandments in the New Testament. No, we must never take this grace for granted and say, well, I'm a Christian now. It's all this grace and mercy. I don't have to worry about how I live my life. No, we should. Let us not use his cross as a license to sin. Never, never, never. In fact, if that's what we're doing, we don't get the gospel. I would argue we're probably not saved if we're using the cross to sin more. I mean, just, that's crazy. And so here's my point, though. What a relief. What a relief. Jesus came to abolish the hundreds of ceremonial laws that, that no one except Jesus could obey and perform perfectly. He did that for us. Now there's hope for the rest of us imperfect people okay lastly in your notes there's one last point i want to share with you let's see how we're doing for time here uh, we're going to close things up and look at the last thing that christ our corner, cornerstone does for us it is this f in your notes is simply he joins us to be built together as a dwelling place for god's spirit he joins us to be built together as a dwelling place of god's spirit i remember a few years ago back in the day where i was at uh, the church that we had helped start in Mississauga, Ontario, and it was originally called Churchill Meadows Christian Church. I served there not as the lead pastor, but as the executive pastor, and things were going so well and so strongly that we thought, you know what, I think we should maybe consider us, our, our church, finding a facility and, and building a building and, and that whole process. 
Um, and so during that time of looking at property and looking for building solutions and facility solutions, there were some people in that church, and that was a new church, by the way. We had a lot of people who were new to Christianity. Um, it was kind of crazy. Like we were baptizing something like 100 people a year. It was just kind of nuts. And it was very exciting. So we had a lot of people who just didn't fully grasp the idea of church and what church was for and what church was about. Um, and so people were saying, um, Kurt, we got to get ourselves a church. <laughs> we got to get ourselves a church. And, and I, without, you know, patronizing them, I said, well, we're the church. Church is not a building. We're, we're the church. Um, that's kind of how it works. And, and they're like, oh, I didn't, I thought churches were buildings. Uh, it's, it's the people, see. And then there'd be other people who said, okay, well, we've got to get this church building. You know why we got to get a church building for ourselves? Because we were renting a school at that time. We've got to get a church building because we need to find God a place to live in our community. God needs a place to live in our neighborhood, and he needs a sanctuary to, to live in, and that's what we need to do. We've got to get God a nice place, a nice house, okay? And I tried not to get judgy, all judgy on this person, you know? But I sighed, and I still sigh. Because, again, the church is not the building. It's not the physical structure. The church is the people. And it's in his people that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells and lives. God doesn't need a building in which to dwell. God dwells amongst his and in his people. Now, let's move on. The idea of needing to give God a temple, needing to give God a place to dwell, that actually is a biblical idea from the Old Testament. Uh, it does come from the Old Testament. God indeed did instruct the nation of Israel to, to build a physical structure uh, to God's own specifications. Uh, then when this, these structures, and there were uh, uh, several uh, temples built for God because they kept getting destroyed by opposing nations, but that's another story. When these temples were completed according to, to God's specifications, what happened after it was all done? Well, the Shekinah glory of God came down and and glory of God would come down upon that temple and then into the temple into what was known as the Holy of Holies, which was at the center of this temple. So God came. They gave God a representative place in which to live. Okay, But then Jesus came 2,000 years ago to change everything, to change all of this stuff. Paul teaches us in verses 18, 20, 21, and 22 that we are God's family now, his household. And as God's family, God's household, we make up the holy temple for God. We are sort of like stones being built into this new spiritual temple. And we are God's people. We are his temple. Built upon the cornerstone, who is Jesus, all right? And Jesus gives us the stability we need. He gives us the completeness we need. He gives us the holiness that we need. He gives us the unity with God and with each other that we need. And then, who dwells within this metaphorical spiritual temple that God's people make up? The third member of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. It's, it's like the Shekinah glory comes in and lives among us. And now, within this new spiritual temple, who is this temple consisted of? Well, it's consisted of and consists of people from all nations. People from all nations. So in this new temple, we have people from Canada, America, China, Japan, the Philippines, Holland, Korea, India, and on and on and on it goes. And we are 
represented in this unified temple made up of the people of God with God's Spirit within it. It's amazing. That may seem like really heady stuff, but let me close with this. What I want you to take home with you today, because this is a bit of a challenging passage for us to get our minds and hearts around, but here's what I want you to see if you don't see anything else. I want you to see Jesus as the grand bringer together the person who unifies us with God, the person who unifies us with one another, the grand unifier. See Jesus that way. See Jesus as the cornerstone who made all of this possible for us to be built into this new spiritual temple for God in which he lives. Jesus, the cornerstone, is the one that we all are dependent upon to save us, to make peace with God, to make peace with each other, who gives us a future far beyond anything we can even comprehend. So Jesus is the unifier of all things. Jesus is the one we all need. Jesus is the one that we need to trust in and depend upon in every way. So I want to just say, let us all come together in Jesus and trust in him to the very end. It does does not change. It does not change. We just keep trusting in Jesus day in, day out to the very end because it's worth it, because it's what God wants for you, because that's where your future is. The future is with Jesus. There's no future outside of Jesus. You need him. He is your unifier. He is your cornerstone. Let's worship him for this tremendous gift and privilege he's given us to be a part of what he's doing to be this new spiritual temple. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to see how pivotal you are to everything. That without you, we have no stability in our lives. We have no stability in our churches. We have no straightness or clarity about why we even exist. You bring clarity about our purpose. You bring clarity about our future. You bring clarity as to why we're here and breathing and and having a pulse. You make it all make sense. And help us to see you as the one that we all need. Help us to see you as our peace. Help us to see you as the one who makes us right with God the Father and makes us right with one another. Lord, I pray that if we have an issue with someone else in our own church family, I pray that we would take steps to make it right and do so in a humble and repentant kind of way. I pray, Lord, if we have any issues, outstanding sins that are uh, putting us or creating a barrier between ourselves and God, that we would confess these sins and receive the mercy and grace that is freely available through you, Lord Jesus. Make us new again as we examine our own hearts as we take part in the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for all uh, for who you are. We thank you for your greatness. We thank you that we can be a part of your plan for humanity and part of the church. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Now we're going to respond to